Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode five for season nine. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 25th of May, 2019, for broadcast on the 12th of June, 2019. And that means you know what happens at WWDC, but we don't. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my ever-effervescent Season 9 co-hosts, Jen Bailey. Thanks, Drew. On this episode, we are talking with John Sundell. John builds apps, games, and developer tools. He also makes Swift by Sundell, a series of weekly articles and a podcast about Swift development and co-hosts the Stack Trace podcast. He has worked for companies like Volvo and Spotify and is now working full-time on creating apps, tools, and content for the Swift community. John also fancies himself an amateur chef. <laughs> In this episode, John is going to take us through the world of unit and UI testing and even a mention of the good, the bad, and the ugly of third-party frameworks. Then, in the second half, I'll talk about UX design, pitfalls, things non-devs tend to miss, and how to make a better connection as a developer with your team. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's really, really exciting to be here. So thanks so much for having me on the show. So I'm going to start with the most important thing on your entire list. Amateur chef? Of course. Yeah, that's the absolute most important one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like for me, cooking is so important. Like there's this thing, the saying that you either live to eat or you eat to live, right? <laughs> and yeah. I definitely live to eat. <laughs> like <laughs> eating and cooking and all things food is one of my main interests. And it's also a great way for me to relax after like a full intense day of coding or writing or podcasting to just go to the kitchen and prepare a meal and enjoy it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I always try to say, you know, to the people who come on the show or I talk to and I'm like, so you're a coder and what do you do for fun? And they're like, I code. I'm like, no, what right. do you do <laughs> when you're not coding? And it got to me, I was like, so I started doing podcasts, but now the podcasting is like coding. So there's always got to be that something that steps you away from that grind. Yeah, absolutely. You need something to... You need something to break the routine, if you will. So whatever your routine is, if your day job is, you know, accounting or if it's coding or if it's podcasting, writing, you need something to break that routine and to do something completely different just to enable you to shut your brain off a little bit and mm. to reflect and to uh, really just relax, like be in a state where you're not just trying to solve the next algorithmic problem, <laughs> but you're trying to <laughs> instead, you know, chop up your vegetables and get the meat cook right. <laughs> so I have to ask everyone who likes to be a chef, um, how do you like your eggs? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. I like them pretty <laughs> hard boiled, actually. And uh, I know that they lose some flavor in doing that, but I just, I'm not a fan of like gooey food, you know, like food that has this like gooey consistency. Like I, I like things that are more uh, firm in their consistency or that are more like soup, you know, in between, not so much. That's interesting. See, <laughs> that's when I, very interesting. When I have somebody else make me eggs, I get them over easy. Oh, right. But when I make them myself, I make them scrambled because I love the spicing and the act of just putting it all together and, and and I actually don't like eating anybody else's scrambled eggs unless I've I've had the time to put them together myself. Right. Yeah, there's something about eggs that just makes it, there's so many permutations of it, right? And you can 
really have strong opinions about your eggs, which is pretty interesting <laughs> for such a basic piece of food. <laughs> Very true. Definitely. I'm very particular about my eggs. <laughs> let's let's hop off of basic and let's talk about Swift. I, I <laughs> love the Swift by Sundell site. They're just it, it, the writing style itself is just so friendly and and basically comes out and says, look, you know this and we know this, but let's take a look at it this way. And it's a really nice way to to edge the uh, the reader into the technical concepts. Thank you so much. Uh, it means a lot to hear that because it is something that I put quite a lot of energy into the the tone of the articles, and it's something also that has developed over time. Like when I started, I was obviously a much much more inexperienced writer. Uh, I was definitely an amateur writer back then, right? I was in the same state as I am now with my cooking. <laughs> uh, but over time, I've kind of found my own style, and uh, one thing that has been really important to me throughout has been to. To not be too, you know, strongly opinionated, to not push things too hard, but to rather just say, you know, here's this technique. Let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at the pros and cons. Let's do it together. Like you said, uh, let's use the we form instead of the I form when I'm talking about things like we're it's like we're doing it together. All, all of me and all the readers in the community, we're taking a look at this thing. Let's see how it works and what we can do with it. And it's a good mix of um, beginner as well as advanced topics. You don't shy away from some of the harder topics, but at the same time, I was uh, looking yesterday at your article on designing Swift APIs, where you basically say, yeah, let's talk about designing Swift APIs, but remember, every time you write code, that's what you're doing. Right, exactly. I usually say everyone is an API designer. That is a little bit of a tagline that I've had going on. Uh, and I really believe that's true. Like, uh, no matter if you are writing an app, like just with a small team, if you're working in a big company, if you're vending frameworks, or if you're working on open source, whichever context you're writing code in, you are at some point writing code for other people. And I know that's something you discussed with Erica, Erica Sadun, on the previous episode that, you know, you don't only write code for the compiler, right? You write code for humans as well. And having those really nice APIs that are easy and nice to read really just makes everything more fluent and nice when you are working with the code as a human, not only as a compiler. Yeah, it's been a very good season that we had Erica talk about writing not only for other people, but writing for yourself for when you come back to it, because heavens knows we put code down for six months, 12 months or worse. And then we come back to it and we don't know what the programmer was doing. And that programmer was us to begin with. Yeah, exactly. It's so incredibly common to do like a git blame or something only to find your own name there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think that's also great. It means also that we're kind of uh, developing as, as developers and as people, like we're learning new skills. And sometimes uh, the things that we were doing in the past, like gives us that that what was I thinking moments, but it just means that we have just evolved to, to learning new things and new techniques that we can then uh, deploy. Uh, but of course, that, that requires us to also be able to understand what past you actually was thinking. So you're definitely right, I think, in that you're also writing for yourself in the future. That could be another person you're also targeting with your code and your APIs. So do you have a recent article that you wrote that you're really happy with? The one you mentioned about API design uh, is definitely one that I wanted to write for a long time and I finally got to do it. And I'm definitely very happy about that article. I also wrote an article uh, about a month ago or something like that called Bindable Values in Swift. And I'm very happy about that one too, because it goes through some of the principles of 
functional reactive programming or more reactive programming in general, uh, where people tend to d immediately jump through these big frameworks in order to get some of those patterns in place. And with that article, I really want to show that not that I'm saying that you should never use some of those big frameworks, but rather that if you are just looking for one specific part of them or one specific pattern, you can actually implement that using not that many lines of code. And that's that's a bit of a red thread, I guess, throughout my article series, uh, which is now up to 118 weeks of writing. So it's been a while. <laughs> wow. uh, and uh, the red thread, I guess, is that, you know, I don't write articles that are about like, hey, here's this framework that you can just put in your code and it's going to be great. But it's about what's underneath, like what's the underlying principles, what's the patterns, like that's what I wanted to look at. And that's a good example of that, I think, with bindable values in Swift, where I'm looking at the core principles of some of those reactive frameworks and how you can bind values to your UI but doing it in a in a completely like straightforward way without dependencies. Yeah, I appreciate that concept of not necessarily going into the big framework. As I talked about on a previous show, I was handed a bunch of code where the uh, the previous developers had used Moya, but they'd basically used Moya for about oh two to five percent of what Moya is good for, and I spent the better part of a, a month ripping Moya out of that entire code because it was just dross it really wasn't necessary and other methods could be used that would reduce the footprint yeah absolutely there's definitely something to be said for using the right tool for the right job mm -hmm. where all these frameworks that exist that are popular and big like they're great like they are they are really well made they have great test coverage like we're going to talk about in a minute uh they are uh they are made by the community many contributors people you know people really like them but they are made for a specific context and if your project does not fit that context then it's kind of a mismatch right and to your point there, like Moya, I think is a, is a great example of a really, really good networking library, like really well-made, great APIs and things like that. But it's also a big framework. It does a lot of things. So if you only need to make like one or two GET requests, you know, you can use URL session, the built-in API, and that'll be completely fine. It will do everything that you need. And you can save yourself having to maintain that dependency. Oh, yeah. So let's actually turn to the world of unit testing and UI testing. Um, a colleague once said to me, for every line of code you write in an application, you need 20 to 50 lines of unit test code. Oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a lot. I'm not saying that my colleague was right. I'm saying that my colleague said this once and we'll just leave it at that. Right. It is a very common thing, though, that people tend to throw out these numbers or these principles or rules or even laws, right? Where they say, you, in order to use testing, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it can be anything from you need to use TDD, test-driven development, and mm -hmm. always write your tests first. You need to always have 100% test coverage or like your former colleague said, you always need to have this ratio between production code and test code. And I tend to take a little bit of a different approach uh, to testing. I am not a huge fan of TDD per se, although I use it for some tasks, like I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh, but I do believe that testing is a really, really great tool to use. But I also think that all those rules and laws that, that sometimes get thrown around can sometimes be damaging when we are thinking about testing. And a lot of people get this impression that in order to start testing, I need to go through this enormous process of learning all these different things. And it's such a huge deal. While it doesn't have to be, it can be so much more lightweight and you can get started much, much easier. Yes. How do you recommend someone? What's the first step to get started with testing? 
I think a good step is to identify pieces of code that you have that are somewhat isolated, maybe not in terms of how they're implemented right now, but conceptually isolated. So let's take an example. Let's say that we're working on, a, on an app that uh, is an e-commerce app. Like it has a shopping cart where you put products in and this shopping cart has a method that lets you apply a coupon code. So you can say, okay, I have this coupon code and it's going to apply this amount of discount. This is a perfect function that you can start unit testing. You can just create your shopping cart, put some products in it, give it a coupon code, and then you can assert that the right price has been calculated. And for a shopping app, that is a core piece of logic, right? Like if you get that wrong, your company can lose a lot of money, right? You might be giving discounts to people <laughs> that shouldn't get them. And that's another thing, like try to identify the code that is really important to you, but is also kind of isolated in a way conceptually uh, because that's usually a lot easier to test without having to go into these advanced techniques like dependency injection and mocking and things like that, which are also important, but that's not necessarily where you want to get started. Yeah, I find a lot of people are more interested in looking at the black boxes than looking at the functionality that they're doing. They're trying to make sure that every every specific function works the way that function is supposed to, when in fact, they're all in support of a general concept and the concept's what's important. Absolutely. And I think also there's a lot of debate around like what's a unit test, what's an integration test, what's an end-to-end -end test. And sure, we can debate those labels and we can say that one test is an integration test or a unit test. But like you say, at the end of the day, we're trying to test the functionality that we're writing, that we're providing to the user. And it doesn't really matter what we call the test in the end of the day. Like if it uses one class or if it integrates one class into another and you can still call that kind of your, your unit test, it doesn't really matter, even though it might technically be integrating one piece of code into another because you're testing the functionality as a unit. And you'd mentioned test-driven development, which is basically starting from the tests and then working back to the code to saying something needs to satisfy this and this and this, and then you write the API around that. Um, I find that uh, a lot of people seem to champion that TDD should be either the primary, uh, TDD should be the testing you're using, or you should be using unit testing. And I disagree. I tend to find that in certain situations, you may fall back on one while still in the same project. Right, exactly. Like TDD is a... Uh... It's a technique, it's a, it's a way of working, and uh, it means that you can switch between doing TDD and non-TDD many, many times throughout a day. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm not a huge fan of TDD as that kind of holistic concept where you say, this is just the only way to work, and I'm going to write everything, every single line of code I am writing in this project is written using test-driven development. Because there is some code that leans itself or lends itself very, very well to TDD. And I have an example. Right now I'm working on a static site generator for, for Swift, like written in Swift. And I'm using almost exclusively TDD to work on that because it's a perfect project for that uh, workflow where I have a piece of HTML I want to generate and I can write a test that asserts that that right HTML has been generated for a given input. And then I make my static site generator work so that it can output that HTML. And the beauty of that is that as I add new functionality, as I keep going, I have all those test cases I've been building up that every time I make a change, I can make sure that I didn't break something that I implemented maybe one week ago or one month ago. 
Uh, but at the, at the same time, if I'm working on, for example, UI development or I'm writing a view controller that is not as easy to do like TDD style, you don't have that clear input output. You have, you know, all kinds of states and you have user interactions. That for me, doing TDD uh, for something like that is 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 a bit cumbersome. And there I would rather just uh, use the simulator, implement the thing I need to do, try out different parameters for something like an animation. And then once I'm done, I look at, okay, what can I actually test here? And going back to uh, the show that we had with James Dempsey, we talked about finding that one true path and trying to avoid just coding to success. I often find that in unit testing, we can do a lot of testing for not just the succeed cases, but making sure that we test around the fail cases. Yeah, absolutely. I love to test error handling. And one kind of hidden gem there is uh, that you can make your unit test cases, your actual unit testing functions, you can make them throw. So you can define all of your all your functions that are called like test X, test Y. They can all be throwing functions. And that way, if you're using the do try catch pattern in your code and you are, have functions that throw errors, you can just call them with try from within your uh, from within your test. And that's really great because that enables you to both test the success case, like you mentioned, and also test the error case where you can catch those errors and assert that the right error was thrown. Because as we all know, like, when we test our applications and we work in the office, we have great Wi-Fi, we are connected to perfect server that is right, you know, <laughs> running, running maybe in the same building, you know, we have low latency. Uh, it can be really hard to, to get all those different error conditions. And sometimes you open up an app and you see like error code 22 and you're like, oh, great. What does that mean? <laughs> and uh, if we can test those in unit testing instead... We don't have to spend so much time like manually going through, like enabling all kinds of link conditioners on our networking. We can test all those things programmatically. Let's talk about UI testing, which is similar, but a relatively different beast. How would you confront that? So I usually use UI testing uh, as a way to do end-to-end testing, which means that I'm testing my code running locally on the user's device all the way to how it communicates with the server, it comes back, you have user interaction, like you're trying to simulate the user using an app in the field, like in real life. Of course, it's still a simulation, so you have to take that into account. Uh, But I like to implement UI tests that are following that. So I try to implement user journeys throughout the app, things like signing in or creating an account, uh, creating some piece of content, maybe if it's an app that has that, like let's say it's a to-do app, creating a to-do item, maybe marking it as completed, making sure that all those things work. And one thing that I love to do here is that I love to use my analytics to verify that my UI tests work correctly. So if you're building an app that has some form of analytics, you might be using an analytics SDK or you might have rolled your own. What you can do is that you can enable your app to, instead of sending those analytics events to the backend, it will instead present some form of UI, like for example, an alert view. So if you have an event that the user's profile screen was shown, you will present an alert view that says user profile screen was shown. And then in your UI test, you can just look for that alert view when you have performed that action. And that is really great because number one, you don't have to implement all kinds of mocking and all kinds of automation features in your app. You can just use the analytics that you already have. And second, it lets you test your analytics because that's another thing that is really hard to test manually. Like your manual testers won't probably go into the like analytics database and make sure the right event was logged. 
And you can get all those things done uh, using a UI test. Coming up in the second half, we're going to talk a little bit about UI and UX design and how things tend to not always go smoothly for the developer. But first, we're going to get a message from TripleByte, our sponsor for the season. We'll be back in just a moment. The RayWenderlick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. This RayWenderlick.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater, and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash ray. That's triplebyte.com, byte, B-Y-T-E, as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. And another thanks to our sponsor, Triplebyte. That's B-Y-T-E. Uh, for sponsoring this episode today on May 25th with John Sundell. And we've been discussing unit and UI testing, uh, the good, bad, and ugly. Uh, For the second half of our show, we'll bring in Drew to talk about his experience with UI. See, now, it's an interesting thing that the average person doesn't know how to code, but everyone thinks they're a UX expert. (laughs) Right. No one will ever tell you which data structure to use in your app, mostly. But everyone can tell you that that widget is in the wrong place on the screen and should work like something else. But I used to think that this was annoying, but now I remember that everyone thinks they're a UX UX expert because UX is user experience, so why shouldn't they have an opinion? I came to the realization the line comes when the user tells you how to make the UX rather than what they want. And I think this is uh, consistent through all of programming is that we don't want the user to tell us what feature to put in. We want the user to tell us what problem they have to solve. Yeah. And UX is, can be a nightmare on any level for the end programmer. I was working for a company doing what was effectively a module launcher. This was at about the turn of OS X, meaning we had been writing in the pre-OS X world, and we wanted an OS X app for our bundle of applications. And the application I was writing in complete Cocoa, because that's what we referred to an OS X app as back then. Right. (laughs) was a launcher, and you basically could roll over different buttons and see what that specific module did, and you press the button, it would launch the app. 
I like to tell people that this app was 95% UI and 5% code. And as a result, this app went through 37 iterations. I know. I counted. <laughs> wow. And the, and the biggest reason on that was nobody liked the color. <laughs> right. <laughs> you see, our company had two colors, uh, sort of dark color and a sort of powdery light color. And the artist decided that the general wash of the app for branding purposes should be in that light powdery color, which everybody thought was disgusting. But let me let me uh, let me back up and, and talk about being a designer and an artist and being a mobile designer and artist, because there are two very different worlds to just being able to somebody who does art and somebody who does design for a mobile application. I had an experience with one company where we got graphics for each of the pages slowly and each graphic used a different version of the colors. I, I asked my designer, can you just give me a color palette or a list of specific colors we're using? And he said, well, just look at the graphics. That's where you get the colors from. And I finally got an XD file from him. It's a, an Adobe application I'll talk about later. And I took apart the XML file underneath it and said, look, you, you've given me 96 different similar reds. <laughs> the oh entire spectrum of red. 96? But I, I think there are certain things that you need to expect when you're doing the design of your app that really a designer needs to have under their belt or you need to be able to, as a developer, handhold them through that process. Uh, one of which is wireframes. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that the end user doesn't really care or know, you know, what was a design, what was code, what was implemented by whom. Uh, it all comes together as one product. And I think it's important for us to keep in, keep that in mind when we're working on a product where you know, there doesn't have to be that very cl clear-cut line between design and development. And rather than looking at it like, you know, as developers, we need to say to our designers that you can't do this, you can't do that, because that will be hard in code. And the same way for designers to go off and design something really crazy that will be super hard to implement. I think it's really important to live in each other's worlds and to really go a lot back and forth when you're working on something. Uh, because that really builds a lot of empathy between the different fields and also ends up becoming a better product when everyone knows what the constraints are, both in terms of the visual design and the, the branding and the colors we're going for, and also the constraints in, in terms of technical uh, you know, decisions or limitations and things like that. So I think it's really important that you have that constant exchange between what are we doing in the code, how are we structuring the code, how are we structuring the UI, and how are we designing the, the application? What are we thinking going forward? What's our design vision and things like that? To have that constant communication between the team. I, uh, I've learned a lot of what I need to communicate with the designer from two 
very disparate experiences. And one was working with a designer who really had no mobile experience whatsoever. And secondarily, working on my own pet project for the past four years where I am the sole person doing everything. And I I have to assure people I'm not an artist. Um, about <laughs> well, if you make art, you're an artist, right? I yeah, think yeah, that yeah. Every, everyone make, is an artist in some capacity, but maybe you're not a graphical designer, right? I'm not a graphical <laughs> designer, and I'm not a good artist. I make art that's that's there. So one of the things that I really discovered was my need to learn more about either vector graphics or very, very, very simple non-vectorized graphics because... When I'm trying to shrink something down to the different sizes that I need, if I don't have that easily shrinkable, it becomes very distorted. Um, if you've put graphics into an app, you know that for iOS, at least, you need different resolutions of those graphics. I know as far as Android, it's it's like, what, 3,000 different resolutions? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's even more than with iOS in my experience, so... Vector yeah, graphics are very helpful. We're getting close to that on iOS as well. We're like chasing you in terms of number of devices. It's like, here's five new ones. Here's <laughs> here's a device without a home button. And here's a device with a notch, you know, like the, oh, yeah. I think that both iOS and Android are in a very similar position right now that you really need to have things be very scalable. Like if from the smallest little device all the way up to, especially if you support the iPad or even the Mac, you know, all the way up to a huge screen or tvOS for that for that matter or Android TV you know you have apps running in the car on the watch there's so many different contexts so having those scalable assets I think is incredibly useful in order to improve iteration times yeah, I think my app icon which I did up in 1024 is reduced down to roughly 22 to 25 different resolutions for everything from the app icon appearing on the watch through glances, notifications, uh, setting screens, all the way up to the display in the app store in case it becomes featured. Right, exactly. Got to prepare for that. That's important. <laughs> if my app becomes what, featured, I'll be just, uh, I, I may just die of a heart attack right then and there because this app is not for a large audience. <laughs> but you will have the app icon for it. <laughs> but I will have the app icon already for it. When my think 35 users say that this should be a featured app. <laughs> you are prepared. That's awesome. But uh, I, th I think an important point here that we're kind of uh, hitting at is, you know, if we need those assets to be scalable and we need them in all of those different uh, sizes and maybe even different colors or different contexts, it's almost impossible for a designer to know all of those things up front, especially if we're supporting both iOS and Android, maybe other platforms. So I mentioned earlier about this, like living in each other's worlds. So rather than putting all that pressure on your designer to produce those perfect assets with those perfect dimensions that you just assume that they know about, because of course they've read the human interface guidelines, right? And the, all the app icon sizes and things like that. I think it's a much better approach to install Sketch on your computer, install Photoshop, install whatever tool they are using to produce those assets and learn how to export. And a lot of designers these days are using Sketch, which is a wonderful tool for developers as well. You can make things exportable. It can 
you can export them into any size you need. You can even script it, you can have plugins. There's a lot of things you can do there and that really helps when it comes to lowering those those obstacles when it comes to getting all those assets. Yeah, the two apps that I've become very fond of are both, uh, besides Sketch, are XD from Adobe, which we started using in its beta form. Uh, it's a wonderful wireframe slash you know, just positioning elements on the screen app, but it also lets you page through them as well. So you can create almost an animated walkthrough of your app. The other one I use is uh, one called App Cooker. Nice. That's a great name. <laughs> and App Cooker is basically not just a design app, but it actually lets you understand the concepts behind your app. So you can talk, you know, there's a page that deals with the concepts of your app or the sections of your app or the monetization of your app so that you can see, well, if I charge this and I have this many users, how is that going to look? Nice. Wow. And uh, App Cooker also has a secondary app that when you run it through App Cooker, somebody else can run your app or at least the sort of wireframes of your app. But um, talking about some of those things that you really want to work with your designer on, because we talked about them not actually being familiar with things like the, the human interface guide is, well, for starters, giving them copies of the human interface guides or any other thing that shows them different resolutions. Because a lot of designers design for one size and the one size fits all concept doesn't work because you have to say, well, what happens if this spills off the screen or what happens if I need to go wider or thinner? Yeah. Yes. They need to learn the principles of kind of a floating design, an adaptive yeah. design. Yeah. The, the adaptive design is definitely the best term for that is talking about, you know, don't tell me that you want this 10 pixels from the left and then the next thing, 50 pixels over. Give me proportions. Yes. Yeah. One important point also, I think, is that it really needs, in my opinion, to be a two-way street. Oh, yes. Like, we can't just look at this like we as developers need to educate our designers about, you know, how iOS development really works or how Android development really works. Uh, it also needs to be us uh, kind of informing ourselves about uh, the way they work and the, the the principles they're going for. And, you know, we talked earlier about the way I write articles and how I'm trying to always get to the underlying principles of a different technique. I look at designs the same way where in order for me to work really well with a designer, not only do I need to show them kind of what the constraints are and what we're talking about here when it comes to like human interface guidelines and things like that, but I also really want to understand what their principles are and what they are going for with the design, because that also makes makes it possible for me to sometimes make decisions on my own that I can then show to them. And chances are I will be right because I have understood the underlying like design that they're actually going for. So things like colors and fonts and spacing, I can often improvise because I've kind of gotten myself into that world. Wow. In my experience, we didn't have a designer. So I worked for a small company where we made mostly utilities that were business oriented and the appearance of them was secondary to their practical purposes. Uh, but the one thing I did learn from working with someone who is very good at both UI design and programming is the usability was the most um, important aspect because he could take something I had built and rearrange it to be so much more usable and intuitive. Um, and he ended up taking most of the stuff off of my interface. So, and I can relate a lot to what Drew said about um, 
you, people who think they're good at UI want to add features. I am guilty of that because I would put all the features, try to cram them all onto the screen. Um, and my other coworker would be like, oh, well, put this over here. These are the things you do the most. Um, so those principles were really important to learn and have helped me in all my designs since working for that company. That's awesome. I, That's I really think cool. as, a, as a developer, you always want to have every tweakable feature tweakable. You always want to have a little button and a switch for everything you can change. And I, I, uh, I, I remember saying, well, well, for the user preference screen, shouldn't we be able to give them preferences into everything? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I was guilty of that. And of course, the user's like, "Well, I don't need to know how to change that." It's like, it may be why dark mode has taken so long to come around. It's like, well, we never thought that the user might want to change that, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you really want to strike that nice balance between giving them something that is opinionated, because you, as the creator of something, and that can be the collective you. You know, if you're working with a team, uh, you have an opinion about how this problem should be solved. Uh, but you definitely need to also like listen to the users and see what problems are they actually solving and what, what do they want to do with this application uh, and also provide the right amount of flexibility so that you can cover more use cases and more preferences. And also this really ties into things like accessibility, right? Where if your app does not res respect things like their preferred uh, text size and whether or not they want motion on and off, some people just won't be able to use the app at all. And I think all of those things kind of tie together when it comes to, you know, bringing together really good design. And that's the classic like Steve Jobs quote, right? That design is how it works, not how it looks. And I think that's so true when it comes to these things that, yeah, sure, we can bolt on features, we can make everything configurable, or we can make nothing configurable, but it's all about how it works and what the users are actually trying to do with the app. The, uh, the relationship between the designer and the developer also can be a wonderful check of power because in both cases, this is a place that feature creep can always come in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You, know, you know, I now want this thing to have this kind of animation for this. It's like, well, does it need to actually animate right. or not? Yeah, exactly. I think that is one, a good question to ask yeah. often. A great example of that, uh, the this last year or so, ever since Apple introduced the new redesigned App Store, where they made these like cards that animate super nicely out when you tap them. So you navigate into these stories and they take over the screen with this super cool physics-based animation. Uh, I've had so many customers and people ask me how to implement that and if I can implement that specific animation for them. And when I say that, you know, that's like a week of work or something because, you know, it's a really specific, really, really well-optimized, fine-tuned animation. Sometimes, you know, they, they think you're crazy because <laughs> it looks so simple, but it takes so much tweaking. And like you say, there can be so much feature creep trying to get that right animation going. While if you just would have opted for something maybe a little bit more basic, at least for starters, you might have just been able to solve a lot of other problems instead of just like getting that animation just right, even though it can be really fun and also really rewarding to get that really nice animation going. One of the apps that I was working on, I was asked to replicate an animation that's similar to what you find in iBooks, where as you turn the page, the page itself curls, and underneath the page, you can see sort of through the paper to a reverse version of the page as you're turning it. Right, exactly. And, and my mind immediately went, well, that's metal. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I don't do metal. At least I don't have enough of a knowledge of metal. 
And I'm researching and I'm trying to find, is there an API to do that? And I can't find an API to do it. And I'm trying to figure it out. And then I get the most horrifying news possible is I find, well, no, Apple copyrighted that. They trademarked that transition. Wow. Actually, to, to put you on the spot now, Jen, the nice thing is coming up in two weeks, we move into our Android episodes. Oh, boy. Yay. So, so uh, instead of me talking about my projects, we'll have Jen talking about her projects. But in the meantime, I really want to thank John for being on the show today and helping us out with a uh, discussion on testing and also discussion on, on UI and UX and the nightmare that that can be and how to make that a lot easier. John, I really, again, want to thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to be on the show. And uh yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on. And again, in two weeks' time, I believe it's the 26th of June. In the meantime, that's going to wrap things up for this episode. We want to once again thank Triple Byte, that's Byte, B-Y-T-E, for sponsoring this and every episode this season. In the meantime, as we say, that wraps things up. We go back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.